This episode contains quotes from a bygone era that does not share the same values that we do as a society today. We here at Drain to the Fringe feel that it is important for contextual purposes to leave the quotes intact as they were said in their day so that you may understand what has happened in the past. These do not reflect the opinions or views of your podcasters today. Viewer discretion is advised. In the news, we have a ghost sighting linked to a missing persons case. So there's a family in California that they went on a hike in the mountains in which it was two adults and their three kids um, go up in the mountains for a hike and they stop to eat lunch. And the three-year-old son starts talking to somebody and he starts pointing at a spot in the meadow and he tells his parents that there is a woman lying face down with her legs straight up in the air in the nearby meadow where he was pointing. And the woman, he was telling his parents that the woman's unable to move or speak and needed their help. And so the parents look into the field and they don't see anything. And the little boy was obviously very disturbed by what he saw. And he kept saying, trust me, trust me. And the mom said, I trust you, but you know, I believe you 100%. And so they shared what they had experienced during their hike on social media, as you do now. Somebody had commented on their social media post that there was a girl who had gone missing in that area in 2020. The three-year-old described the person who he was seeing before they obviously reached out on social media and it matched this girl to a T, saying she had black shirt, blue jeans, and blue hair. And that was the exact description oh. <clears throat> of this missing girl when she had gone missing. Okay, because that I thought you're going to say very general information, but blue hair is kind of something that would stand out. Yeah, it's actually super cool. So the kid actually goes on to identify the woman when he was given photos of different women to pick out and he picks her out of a bunch of different photos and the person in charge of the case actually reaches out to the family to bring them to where they were in the woods to see if it led to any, what do you call it? more further leads in the case yeah. yeah not premonitions but just like leads if he saw her in the field yeah. they thought maybe they could go back to where it was and retrace their steps but they didn't find any evidence so the case does remain open and yet i know isn't that a crazy story where'd you find that this was on a news site called what is this it's a news channel in california wsbt 22 Oh, interesting. So one of those just more like local journal yeah. newspaper yeah, websites. I, yeah. my, all my Googling for opening topics, I found this one, which is a really okay. cool one. And that's my opener for today. And nice. it has nothing to do with what we're talking about at all. It sure does not. <laughs> yeah. And we're moving on to talk more about drugs because that's what we're talking about now. Yes. But for now, let's just do the intro and get to it. It is. Intro goes here. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe with your ever ineffable hosts, Taylor and Chelsea. Hello. Hi. Today we are going to continue on with our conversation about drugs. Yes, drugs. Mm -hmm. We need yeah. to say that a few times, drugs, just so that we can get it into the algorithm. Last time we looked at the history of the more or less major drugs, or at least their hierarchy. 
going back to when they were first founded, up until about a point where they start to get a bad connotation attached to them, and things start to go south for these humble drugs. Yeah, they're so humble. Yes. So we have been mostly looking at opiates, cocaine, and cannabis. We will continue on with this, moving into criminalization. This should take us from about the early 1900s to the mid-1900s. So after that, we will be looking more at the more recent changes that have been going on, and especially how things were treated from the 80s onwards. But for now, Chelsea, I'll let you get started on your part. Opium dens, which I really did a lot of research into. You'll be able to tell. Opium dens, just in case you don't know what an opium den is when we're talking about it, it's a designated place to buy and sell opium. The owners there would keep a supply of long pipes and lamps um, used in smoking of the drug. You would maybe you've seen a picture. I know I have. I don't know where I've seen a picture, but it's just something in culture. I feel like that's just something that you inherently know. It's been seen on TV somewhere. Seen it at one point or another. And they're just kind of like laying back, relaxing with these huge pipes. I don't know about you, but it's always kind of like given a negative light when people are showing it like it was always a seedy place or a bad place yeah it was but you look at those pictures and it looks like so soft soft yeah that's the word I want to it, rub looks everything. Like, it almost looks like so like chill and fancy in the way i'm looking at it mm. or remember it maybe no it um, almost looks like a, a speakeasy but with like yeah. lower chairs and kind like, of just a more <laughs> mellow vibe yeah like super low energy <laughs> place to be so yeah i mean the opium dens were first came from china so if you remember with me talking about china they were just really sexy awesome opulent places to be were opium dens chelsea when we're talking about when we're talking about opium dens in this kind of idea what time frame are we talking about i mean they go back in china a very long time well they do but like to so what i found was when it came over to america which is really cool his all of this has such cool history i had no idea about so opium comes into north america with um the gold rush the chinese are coming over that's when they first started immigrating over to north america because they wanted it on the gold rush and so naturally where that led where they could get access to the gold rush was San Francisco. So there was a huge explosion of population in San Francisco opium dens, which is pretty cool. <laughs> I had no idea that's how it came. Um, kind of sad they're not there anymore. They got a robust Chinatown. Yeah, they do. So that started in about or the ch- first Chinese started arriving in 1850. <clears throat> So in that time, they all come, they're opening opium dens in San Francisco, and slowly it does go across. So yeah, opium dens were super popular. Essentially, they start cracking down on this. Obviously, they see this attracting many people who are not Chinese into this, and it attracts attention of not only citizens who start protesting against it, also start it's one of the very first legislations that they bring in which is the 1875 ordinance banning opium dens they start to go underground at that time but chinese i think you do need to state here too like this is very racially based legislation yes oh it is many people are frequenting them but when you look at talks 
about the criminalization of opium dens, almost every time, at least passively, they're going to be talking about how the Chinese are corrupting our society. As we're going to see with everything, pretty much everything is going to be racially based when it comes to drugs and the criminalization of them. And the way in which marketing goes towards these people being bad that brought the opium in. Opium in particular is the Chinese. And so there's a lot of anti-Chinese racism because they were seen as the ones having to do with the opium. The opium dens that we kind of know today, or at least we think about when we're talking about them, they really came about when England conquered China and especially in that trading. Their big thing was trading opium to China. That's kind of where the opium wars came from. So what we think of as this opium epidemic coming from the Chinese actually came from Britain to China, to the rest of the world. Yeah, I find that there's a lot of misinformation and the United States just jumped quickly on. I don't even know if it was the fastest way to get a reaction out of ways or just, I guess it was just passing the buck onto somebody else so that they didn't have to take the blame and or actually take responsibility for it. They just said, no, it's this group of people hate them. We will come in and criminalize it for you. So the opium dens start to go underground at this time where you will see like Chinese run laundry parlors or what are those called where you go do your laundry. But the opium den would be in the basement in a back room or a tightly sealed room to keep drafts from making opium lamps flicker. I would be really curious about that connection too because I know like Chinese laundromats are a historical thing and they were generally associated with doing laundry but also brothels and opium dens. Yeah, I don't know the connection with that. I never actually looked at it. But like Um, they're known as the laundry people, I guess. I don't know where that comes from. It would be an interesting (laughs) thing to look into. I guess that's where... Or is that really racist to say? I don't know. I might want to edit it out. I don't know if it is. (laughs) I didn't look it up, so I don't know if it's racist or not. But most of the opium dens were in Chinatowns. This starts in San Francisco, and it does basically move slowly across the United States, eventually ending up in New York as the population moved and they became more popular. And basically in every city, there was a opium den alongside with hashish dens. I mean, there was dens for both. (laughs) Yeah. Interestingly, no cocaine dens. Yeah. Which is weird. You don't need any um, time. If if you're doing cocaine, you want to do it and you want to go. True. That's very true. So eventually they move over to New York where it's, you know, just basically in Chinatown, famously located in Mott and Pell Streets. And even though they were kind of outlawed and hidden, there was many and many major cities all over the United States. Eventually, it came to a close. We're looking more like the last opium den closed down in New York in 1957. Sorry, the last legal or the last known? Last known opium den was raided and shut down June 28, 1957 in New York. So that had been long after it all left San Francisco and moved over to New York. Yeah, apparently they were just like the fun places to be. Very nice. So that's opium dens. Unless you have anything to add. No. And frankly, heroin kind of takes uh, all the opiates kind of take a back step to this episode just because like cannabis, I think, is the main culprit in the original criminalization of everything. So mm-hmm. it's going to be the main focus here. But it does kind of make a comeback in the coming episode. This one with the opium dens, though, is kind of the 
first, though it wasn't like one of the more notable ones, 1875 ordinance banning opium dens was one of the first kind of steps in that direction. And the way that they had villainized the Chinese in regards with opium is something that was a telling of what is to come. And I do really think opium is a very unique one in the war on drugs because it's really the only one that is, it's a schedule one drug, but at the same time, so many parts of it are used in medicinal products that yeah, it, it, I would, it could never would fully go, go away. It's probably one of the mother of all drugs that we use it in so many different things today. It's the mother of all painkillers, at least I do yeah, think. Yeah, not the mother of all drugs, mother of all painkillers, I think. We can at least say that because it was the original painkiller for the most part. So then is it the regulation of cannabis that I'm going on to? You can do that. You can do if you have anything on cocaine or cocoa products. I don't. That's okay. It kind of takes a backseat again. (laughs) Sorry, we're talking about drugs, but this episode is going to be very cannabis heavy. Yeah, it is. It's super interesting stuff. And I've always been outspoken on the decriminalization of drugs. And this is all stuff that I found super interesting because I've always talked about how important the decriminalization of drugs is. I never actually looked at the history of the criminalization and it is racist, racist and worrisome to say the least. And I think it's something that everybody needs to take a close look at now, how it was put into place and how we even look at people nowadays because of this and how these regulations went into place. It's crazy. So I'm going to go into the regulation of cannabis. So I think it started with we're looking at cannabis because it's I don't know that it was one of the first. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and say it was because heroin was being used for so long and seen as legal in the United States for the painkilling alone. And there were a lot of drug addicts because it was just being so willy-nilly prescribed. But 1906, Theodore Roosevelt makes a law called the Pure Food and Drug Act that the name of the drug and the amount contained must be written on each container, which... I mean, that sounds nice. Coming Teddy from- was a pretty good president. Yeah, it's a good idea just because many companies in that time would use things like formaldehyde to keep food fresh and yeah. medicine would contain opium and alcohol and things like cough medicine for children. Yeah. This is the original of when you turn your product you're about to buy at the store, turning it over to see what products are in it and how many calories. This is the original law that kind of creates everything from there. I do like that. I do find it a nice thing to have that they can't hide anything in there that I I mean, you should know what you're buying. So when this was first enacted in 1906, companies and shysters selling their cure all medicines still found ways to get around the loopholes in these poison laws. So they did call these poison laws. States starting introducing acts themselves, the first of which was introduced again in 1906 in the District of Columbia under quotations, an act to regulate the practice of pharmacy and the sales of poisons in the District of Columbia and for other purposes, unquotation. There was continued criticism about the availability of narcotics, so legislation was passed on this act to remove the loopholes at a federal level. And it led to a revision spoken of in 1910 would aim to restrict all narcotics as poison and limit their sale to pharmacies and require doctors prescriptions to get your hands. Having something like that, where only certain people can get their hands on certain products, legislation Mm -hmm. like that makes sense. It does. Because there are certain products 
the average person in the public does not need access to. I do not need, nor should I have access to uranium or plutonium or anything oh, that true. gives off radiation. I do not need it access to It should be regulated because grenades. look what it in the wrong hands. Exactly. Nor do I need access to landmines, which are absolutely a horrible product. Yeah, there's a lot of horrible products yeah. out there. No, um, there are very there are certain products that the vast public does not need access to. That makes sense. But is this actually being done in the right way at this time? That's always the question. Hmm. Which leads me to my next thing. So this does lead to the labeling of cannabis being considered a poison. So the act was further updated in 1938 to become the Federal Pure Food, Drug and Cosmetics Act still in effect to today. Under this act, the framework for prescription and non-prescription drugs and foods are set along with standards by its enforcing agency, which is the FDA, also known as the Food and Drug Administration. Goods found in violation of this law are subject to seizure and destruction at the expense of the manufacturer. And that combined with the legal requirement that all convictions be published proved to be an important tool in the enforcement of the statute and had deterrent effect upon would-be violators. And marijuana remains defined as a dangerous drug under this act today in most states. Which is changing on a year-by-year basis. Yes. And is fully decriminalized here in Canada. But I didn't even touch on that. That's just an FYI. For well, it's not even just decriminalized. Canada. It's legalized. Yeah, that's what I meant to say, because I guess they're not the same thing. Yes. <laughs> it's It gets a little messy because Portugal is fully decriminalized. Like 100% any drug you want is decriminalized in Portugal. I think that's the way but to go. nobody can sell them because oh. it's not legalized. It's, it's kind of a weird spot I mean, they're in, I mean, but it is still, it I is much better than how we have it. I guess that's in a way getting to what you were saying, like it should be regulated. I'm there. And what I was thinking of with the doctors comes up later in another act that I'm going to talk about. So pin that. I hope I remember about it. And I'll bring it up again because of what I said, acquiring doctors prescriptions. So with this, I move into the Mexico revolution and then the view of marijuana in the US in the early 1900s. Essentially, after the Mexican Revolution of 1910, Mexican immigrants were coming in droves to the United States, going to, I say, because I should say, because I don't live in the U.S., as in almost a million were into the U.S., introducing the recreational use, introducing in quotations, the recreational use of marijuana to U.S. culture, or so the Americans say. I'm going to kind of tell this in two different parts. From what I'm going to tell you the how the Americans see it, and then I'm going to just go back and do a quick thing about how the Mexicans saw this. Um, so here, it does become associated with immigrants, leading to fear and prejudice about the newcomers from Mexico, where we saw this kind of like the Chinese, but I'm going to explain it better here. Well, and they would be working side by side with Americans in farms. And the Americans would go out for a drink after work, the Mexicans wouldn't do that, they would they would have cannabis. So right Um, there, it is a separating point, separating the cultures. And are you going to get into the Great Depression part now? A little bit? Yes. Okay. There was the prejudice about the newcomers, anti drug campaigns warned against encroaching marijuana menace, Terrible crimes attributed to marijuana and Mexicans who used it, supporting the notion that Mexicans were highly accustomed to using marijuana recreationally. This is essentially the start of the hysteria around marijuana and reefer madness. I think if you haven't been living under a rock, I wasn't alive during this time, but I 
am familiar with reefer madness and all that hysteria that was around. I mean, all drugs eventually, but yeah. with marijuana, the propaganda behind it was crazy. And the things that they were saying that it did and people were eating we'll it get up. into that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't really cover it other than this, but yeah, this is where it essentially starts. Oh, during... you don't worry about that. <laughs> okay, good. So during the Great Depression, massive unemployment increased public resentment of immigrants, which in turn increased the concern about the problem of marijuana. This led to shoddy research in quotations. There's a lot of quotations in this episode. Linking the use of marijuana with violence, crime, and other socially deviant behaviors being committed by the racially inferior and underclass communities as these researchers suggested. So essentially they're bringing in researchers to make up all this crazy nonsense about marijuana and how it has everything to do with the Mexicans. Rumors were spread that Mexicans were giving marijuana to school children. Police officers were claiming that marijuana incited violence and a lust for blood and gave users superhuman strength. I don't know if you've ever smoked marijuana, but... <laughs> It's the bath salts of its day. <laughs> yeah, like this is reach, like a really far reach to say anything of such huge superhuman strength and lust for blood. This does lead to the criminalization of marijuana eventually, and it's outlawed in 29 states between 1916 and 1931, all leading up to the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, banning it nationwide, even though this is the crazy part, not, not that all of that wasn't crazy, because it's so based on racism. There were many objections from the American Medical Association that it has legit medical benefits. FYI, there has never been any association with any overdose deaths from marijuana, and it does have far fewer negative effects than alcohol. So essentially, this Marijuana Tax Act was complete propaganda and criminalized due to racism. It had nothing to do with any sort of scientific research or anything. Looking into the stigma associated with this, I wanted to shed some light in the very racist way it was brought about. So Mexico has had a very similar view on marijuana as it was brought to Mexico by the Spanish as an industrial fiber, as we talked about in the last episode. Eventually, the drug part of the plant took the same negative associations that other drugs carried in the 19th century. It starts to appear as a recreational substance that is smoked and pretty concentrated in some of Mexico's most marginal environments. So in prisons, soldier barracks, and so in Mexico, it became very associated with violence and danger, just as it did in the United States. Which, I mean, that is probably why it had those connotations in the United States. And in Mexico... Yeah, like I said, they thought the very same in the US, so just actually ahead of its time. During this time, prior to 1910, there were very few regulations in the United States. As we saw, the US was importing cannabis from India, where I should have said that with the hashish dens, that's where they were bringing it in from in India at that time. Well, and they would also be growing up what is known as Indian hemp in North America too, like yeah. it, it was being grown here. And they would specifically market it as ideal for smoking, obviously for being used recreationally. And there was evidence that Mexico's uh, Me Mexicans were crossing the border to the US to buy cannabis in pharmacies to take back to Mexico to sell. So it was kind of working the other way to begin with. And this is because Mexico had actually prohibited it 
far before the U.S. had. And you wouldn't think that going by what I had said earlier and how it came about to criminalize it in the U.S. No, but especially, and sorry, I'm just going to add this a little bit. Those Mexican farm workers coming to the U.S., the fact that it wasn't criminalized in the U.S., it might be driving particular farm workers to come to the U.S. to work. True. I think it was more the Mexican Revolution, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's part of it, too. But just I'm just adding a little bit to that. True. No, that is Thank true. You, it didn't actually come up in my research, but that definitely... It just I seems like a nice, easy, logical step. Yeah, exactly. It really does. So obviously, this history does continue on. This is just a brief summary of a very complex issue. But for the purpose of what we're covering in this particular podcast and brevity, I will move on from this one unless you have anything to add. Not at this point, no. Yeah. So I found that easy. Like we just talked about two things in which drugs start to get criminalized because of racism. I mean, opium, it had it coming for it, I have to say. See, so long as opioids never really happen, I don't think opiates like opium actually uh, end up criminalized the way they are. Yeah, and I agree. Sorry, also, I, also, if racism isn't a thing, but that's a, that's a whole different world that we can't uh, even envision. I mean, to me, opium is naturally occurring. Marijuana is naturally occurring. Coca leaves are naturally occurring. I see nothing wrong with something that the earth put out is producing, right? It's once the humans get involved, then we get racism. <laughs> we get people isolating parts of the plant so that we can make oh specifically for addiction yeah yeah Yeah, we can make very i mean we're making fentanyl which is one of the most dangerous things so it's it's once we get involved and then there's the commercialism behind it or that's not the word i'm looking for commoditization yeah where people want to exploit anything they can get your hands on where you get coca-cola and stuff like that kids cough medicine where it becomes problem yeah, the and it, hilariously, like the um, the synthetic drugs that we've talked about so far mm-hmm. have come about for pure reasons. Like heroin was created to be a less addictive alternative to morphine. I guess that's a pure reason. Yeah. A good, most, they had good intentions about, so far. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I can't really say being a part of the human race and watching humans just do their thing that anybody really has a pure... Well, I mean, I guess sometimes there can be. Not anymore with consumerism, I guess. Capitalism, that's the word I want. <laughs> Yay! Okay, Yay, so capitalism. Next, yeah. So next, I am moving on to the Harrison N- Narcotics Act, which again, I had never heard about this. Oh, so- sorry. I do want to touch a bit just before okay. you get to this, because do you remember the last piece of legislation you talked about? Oh. Sorry, it was the cannabis, not cannabis, marijuana in 1937. What was the name of it? I need the whole name just oh, because it's Marijuana important. Tax Act. Yes. Mm-hmm. So do you find anything weird in that name? X. Part of what's going on here is a weird fight between state and federal law. Importantly, what the state and feds are have power over or jurisdiction over. Before this was prohibition, which the US had also done, which was done through the Treasury branch as well. They were done this way under the Tax Act, because there's no question the federal government has jurisdiction over taxation to make sure they could make it illegal in certain ways. 
they made them tax laws. Mm. As opposed to banning them outright, at this point, they are tax laws. And I could go much more in depth than that. That is a good enough explanation for what we're talking about. Yeah, that's basically all that I've been going on today. That's a good enough explanation for what (laughs) we're going on today. (laughs) Harrison Narcotics Act? Yes. Okay. Not Harrison Hot Springs. No, that's a nice place. (laughs) So as we saw in our previous episode again, good thing we did that other episode because it's coming in handy. Drugs are widespread and have a very long history and were unregulated for a long time like a long time, more than it's been criminalized. Obviously, white man's founding of the isolation of addictive drugs was a problem that we were just talking about. For example, if you need some Coca-Cola, which was the exploitation of putting cocaine into a drink so that people Sorry, want to drink a brilliant it. idea of putting cocaine yeah. in a drink. Yeah, and delicious, I would think. I've never had some Again, of the original. Again, it still but... has cocoa in it. It's just not yeah. the cocaine part of the plant. Yeah, apparently very secret recipe. Or even the prescription by doctors for menstrual pains or even heroin in kids' cough medicine because we love to exploit basically everything. Oh, um, or even Sigmund Freud's absolute positive feedback on how cocaine is absolutely necessity to life. Yeah, it was a... He both loved cocaine and self-reported and studied its addictive properties. Yeah. (laughs) So in 1909, legislation is introduced internationally restricting the importation of opium in accordance with international conventions against the use of opium. This was the Hogue Act, I believe. Quickly after this was enacted internationally, there was pressure for action federally within the United States clarification not canada the u.s was becoming big on the international stage at this time so everyone back at home is wondering why they just had a say in this internationally and they weren't doing anything in the actual united states at this time different states began to enforce anti-narcotic laws as it quickly became apparent to the medical community in which highly addictive drugs were being given out just willy-nilly like you want some heroin you got some cramps here you go You got some depression, here's some heroin. You got a cough, here's some heroin. You need white teeth, here's some cocaine. So enter the Harrison Act, passed in 1914. And I'm just going to read you this little excerpt, which got it completely right because it is what it is. The definition of the Harrison Act. So it is an act to provide for the registration of with collectors of internal revenue and to impose a special tax on all persons who produce, import, manufacture, compound, deal in, dispense, sell, distribute, or give away opium or coca leaves. Their salts, derivatives, or preparations and for other purposes, which seems a little bit vague. Salts. So this is the first step in what was the beginning of the oppressive and expensive, among other words, that I would like to use for the war against drugs. So essentially, it's a law that regulated the production, importation, and distribution of opiates and coca products, which was actually fairly vague. Like I said, it's a fairly vague statement against it. And if you will notice, this did not cover marijuana, where I had covered this with the Mexican Revolution and immigration. So in regards to that specifically, states were passing their own laws, as I talked about. Just reverse back like 10 minutes if you can't remember. Yeah, and... 
you're going to see a lot of it move from the south up just based on how the border is located. Mexicans are Mm. coming up, they're smoking marijuana. So it's going to slowly move from south to north. So this act was originally designed to medicalize cocaine and heroin by restricting their distribution to physicians who were essentially taking the brunt of this act being targeted by police and even facing imprisonment. That's where I put a pin in it from the last one. It was doctors. It was soon altered by all the prohibitionists and all that razzmatazz of the day. Razzmatazz seemed like the right word to use there. With yeah, it's it's the we're into jazz music right now. You yeah. got the zoot suit on. You say razzmatazz. I don't know what it was about jazz. Uh, is it the fact that it rhymes with raz and mataz? Yeah, the jazz, jazz razzmatazz and drugs, which don't rhyme, but they went together. Oh, do they go oh. together? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Physicians seemed hard-pressed not to supply addicts with further drugs. They wanted to. I don't know. There were court cases with this. Specifically, I wasn't going to include this, but I thought you might like it. Webb versus the United States. And it was ruled that physicians could not prescribe narcotics solely for maintenance. Meaning those menstrual cramps that they were supplying to females who were complaining about cramps. They couldn't supply them with more because they needed to maintain being high now because they got them addicted to drugs. So this did diminish the supply and it was felt by mid-1915 and in 1918 a commissioner was calling for sterner law enforcement while newspapers were having a heyday with it as I think you're going to cover publishing articles on drug-related crime waves. So I think the media had a fairly big impact on all of this especially when we're seeing all the craze about um marijuana fever and all of that stuff and all the racism i mean it was put in there and really like the flame was oh my god i can't they were fanning the flames flames. yes this one yeah (laughs) fanning if you're not watching live on website we use twitch you need to go to sleep (laughs) don't worry you're almost on your part Oh, I can see the end. Okay. This led to the tightening up of the act and the importation of any heroin for any use was banned in 1924. I don't know what, I mean, it's got to start somewhere, I guess. Yeah. The remaining effect of this act, which had been suppressed into the Controlled Substance Act of 1970, is still in place today. And it is the warning label you may find if you take any of these opioids. Warning, maybe habit forming, labels and inserts on opioids, barbiturates, medicinal formulation of cocaine and chlorohydrate, which I don't even know what that is. Chlorohydrate, I don't know either. Barbiturates or a very like 1910s, 1920s, 1930s craze. What was her name in The Wizard of Oz? Judy Garland? Yeah, Dorothy. Yeah, yeah. She was put on a lot of barbiturates. They're, oh. they're just a uh, they're a uh, stimulant so that if anything's wrong, well, don't worry, we'll just get you psyched up to go out there. Mm. Also a big party joke in L.A. at the time. Yeah, they all had their heyday. Oh, Razzmatazz. Yeah. They all had their uh, Razzmatazz time or yeah. their Razzmatime, if you will. Yeah, that's what I meant. That's the end of my part. I need a break. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we left it a good part. I am going to today talk about a guy who was 
central in really how we see drugs today. Or at least how we have seen drugs for the last century. He's a man by the name of Harry Anslinger. And just because it's something we haven't talked about a lot, but it does kind of fall into this category. And I say this while Chelsea's just chugging back hard. What are you drinking today? I'm drinking from ABC, another beer co, Bella Bira, an Italian pilsner. Nice. Is it good? Can't talk today, though. It's decent. I think we had it when you were here. I don't know if you drank one. I don't think so. I am drinking Yellow Dog IPA. Oh, yeah, that's a good yes. one. That's I, one of our uh, favorites. Yeah, I am drinking it now to support Bernie's friends who may or may not need the support of the SPCA for Yellow Dog. Supports the SPCA with every beer that's bought. Oh, good. I say that I in the hopes that maybe someday a beer that we're drinking will advertise on our spot. So sorry for the <laughs> that weird nice. plugs. <laughs> Anywho, <laughs> it also falls in nicely to what I want to talk about now, which is prohibition, the actual prohibition that everybody knows about. That went from 1919 to about 1932. The complete and utter criminalization of alcohol use. Hold on. Was there a secret prohibition that I don't know about? Yeah, the prohibition of drugs, which we are oh. talking about now. Okay. Because prohibition just means the prohibiting of using something. So it's just really, we call this prohibition, but really the criminalization of all drugs is prohibition. Yeah. Okay. So long as at some time we, some point we come out of that. Cause if we don't, then I, I guess it would never be called prohibition. It'll just be called the time life. But that came in in about 1919. That was through the treasury as well. And that's how they got Al Capone. Al Capone was a big bootlegger. He was caught for tax fraud, not for any of the legal activities he did, but for not paying taxes on his illegal activity. So that is usually how they come down, isn't it? They come down on a technicality. The big thing is, is whether or not you got the money legally, you need to pay taxes on it. And that was always a big thing. And even in Canada, like you have to pay the CRA, Canada Revenue Agency. The CRA every year would go in and audit the Hells Angels books. And the RCMP would escort them to that door, would not go inside. And the auditor would go in and make sure they're paying all their taxes and then go out and they cannot tell the RCMP about any of the illegal activity going on, just that they paid their taxes. That's very interesting. I like that. But um, I I think it's an important spot to talk about that this is all kind of going on when prohibition, because it does lend what's going to happen. And I just, I want to put a bit of a stat out there. In the US alone, it's estimated that about 95,000 people per year die from alcohol-related causes of death, (laughs) which is likely more than all the other drugs out there combined annually killings really oh yeah and the big one here you got to remember is this would include duis which kills about ten thousand people a year in the u.s right i mean are those all alcohol though probably a lot of them i i would have to look into it a little more to tell you specifically like yeah. what they're breaking it down to i can tell you about six thousand people for per year in the u.s die from liver failure specifically due to alcohol and 10,000 people die every year from drunk drivers. Interesting. I'd be interested to see that on a chart, which I didn't even look at, with fentanyl overdoses. Because Yeah, and specifically because we're going through what's called an overdose crisis. And I don't think Epidemic, it comes anywhere. Calling yeah, it. And I don't think it comes anywhere near the amount of people who die annually from alcohol. 
That's crazy. But I, I, I that. bring this up just because we're going to be talking about a man by the name of Harry Anslinger. Chelsea, do you want me to ruin his reputation beforehand or after with his quotes? Do we want them to be biased towards him as we go through the other things? Well, and that's that whole thing. I kind of want it to be a fair analysis that we go through. But at the same time, I want you to be able to view everything this man does through words he said. Yeah, he's a dick. You know what? I'm, I'm going to do two quotes <laughs> right off the bat, and then we'll get into this guy, okay? So okay. just two of them. I hope it's one of the ones that I saw. Okay, I have well, a feeling it is. This one's not bad. Marijuana is taken by musicians. And I'm not speaking about good musicians, but the jazz type. Yeah, those jazz singers. <laughs> Let's see. All right, here. Reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. That wasn't the one that I was talking about. But no, I, I have a lot that will go through. I feel like that sets the stage. And I feel like this is just everything that I just talked about with racism, with drugs, coming to form in a human person. Yeah, this guy is an absolute bureaucrat by every term you could use to describe it very racist and doesn't like drugs but it'll come up why he doesn't like drugs yeah okay let's talk about so he started his career right. with the pennsylvania railroad company he kind of made a name for himself as a very detail-oriented investigator and at one point was able to deny a claim made by a widower because he found out that she had been committing fraud while she was making her claim, and it saved the company $50,000. It would have been a lot and of money, probably. that's in 1915. Yeah. So that, that's probably close to a million dollars right there. Harry went from there to work for the military and other police organizations, mostly internationally from 1917 to 1928. His duties took him all over the world, from Germany to Venezuela and Japan. He is widely credited with shaping not only America's domestic and international drug policies during this time, but influencing drug policies of other nations, particularly those that had not debated the issue internally. By 1929, Anslinger returned from his international tour to work as an assistant commissioner in the United States Treasury Department Bureau of Prohibition. So he gets involved with the prohibition of alcohol. At that time, corruption and scandal gripped prohibition and narcotic agencies. The ensuing shakeups and reorganizations set the stage for Anslingers, perceived as an honest, incorruptible figure, to advance not only in rank but in political stature. And in 1930, at the age of 38, Anslinger was appointed the founding commissioner of the Treasury's Federal Bureau of Narcotics. The illegal trade in alcohol and illicit drugs was targeted by the Treasury, not primarily as social evils that fell under the government's purview, but as losses of untaxed revenue. And in 1930, when he was appointed here, and this would be under J. Edgar Hoover, would be the president he's under at this point. He was given J. Edgar a... Hoover, was he not the head of the CIA? Sorry, J. Edgar Herbert Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover was J. Edgar Hoover was the head of the FBI for a long time. Right. I'm getting my Hoover's mixed yeah, up. Yeah, I, I said it wrong. Herbert Hoover was the one who appointed him. His narcotics bureau with the Treasury Department had an annual budget at this time of a hundred thousand dollars. And just kind of a general consensus of what they had to do. Which I found interesting at this time, 1930, narcotics captures everything which includes alcohol. And this is because it is during Prohibition, so alcohol is just thought of as a drug at the time as well. What happened with alcohol, but that's not what this is about, so forget I said anything. Well, we can talk a bit about it. The whole push for Prohibition was the women's suffrage movement was a big part of it. 
also the KKK because they didn't like the demons of alcohol. But um, women's it suffrage movement was big. I, you know what? If you would have said guess, I, I don't know that I would have said KKK, but you know what? Logically, if I really thought about it, I could have guessed it. Just be like, just think racism as of... As it's always going, think, yeah. Uh, yeah. Appearance but just the, the women's suffrage movement got behind it because they saw a strong correlation between men drinking alcohol and coming home and beating their wives. Mm -hmm. So they thought, you know what, let's just get alcohol banned. And the only reason it kind of got to the point it could was because of the KKK. So Oh, hmm, interesting. Yeah. But he's put in charge of this department while alcohol is under prohibition. So this would take up like a large majority of what he's doing. Then what happens here in 1932, alcohol is legalized again. And suddenly his department, which had a hundred thousand dollars worth of uh, budget, doesn't necessarily have anything to do. Because of alcohol? Because of alcohol and other drugs at this point aren't necessarily criminalized or like the, uh, the marijuana narcotics oh. act doesn't come around for another seven years. Oh. And he's, if he doesn't find something to go after, he's out of a job. Oh. So from there, I, I think we can really say that Anslinger decides that he's going to take a run at the largest commercial narcotic out there, and that would be marijuana. Why did that guy ever want to save his job? Yeah. Not, not that he wasn't racist as well. It just so happens that these two these two things line up very well at this point hmm. of both being racist and wanting to keep his job because minorities are the ones predominantly using drugs. And this is even a quote from him. Marijuana is the most violence causing drug in the history of mankind. Most marijuana smokers are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. He decides at this point to make a concerted effort to go after marijuana, to get it, criminalized so that he has a job still i mean he i was hoping that you would share that quote because that's the one that i was talking about and what better <laughs> way i mean if somebody were to say that nowadays imagine what would happen yeah imagine. you you can't you can't say a few of those words anymore but for also some reason, why did he include entertainers at the end because of the jazz musicians uh, and we will get into that this guy hated jazz musicians <laughs> But it just seems like, well, you could never say probably 100% of the words in that sentence now and get away with it. Um, but it just seemed to be something that the way the media was portraying all of these things that people just were like, you're right. We need to criminalize this now. Keep our family safe. Yeah, and that's that's the approach. That's the approach he takes too, is making it seem like a violent drug. And he uses something that was the coined term is yellow journalism, and that is using non-researched, non-scientifically studied stories with scandalous headlines to scare people. Yeah, it's obvious now, but not obviously. Yeah. It was a scare. Well, and even it's still used today. Like you will see headlines everywhere that. Do not match up with the the uh, oh, actual true. article. I guess you see that a lot with like celebrities and stuff like that. They post like things that'll get the click, like clickbait. Well, I, I see it. There. 
I see it on things like Reddit's conspiracy subreddit all the time with somebody will make a scandalous headline or there will be a scandalous headline. And then you have to, you either read the article or just go read the comments. And the first one will be, this is the dumbest interpretation of the headline you could possibly get or of the story. And then they explain it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a clickbait essentially. Yeah. yeah. So yellow it's journalism like is 1930s version of clickbait. Okay. It's used to polarize. Yeah, but from here, um, Harry Anslinger came up with what he called his gore files. And they were the ones that he found so sensational. He looked through all the police reports and he would find violent acts committed by criminals that he could associate to marijuana. So dumb. This is the first one, an entire family, sorry, this is actually his quote from the story. So I might try to edit this a bit to make it sound like a 1930s old-timey news article. Okay. This is, this is what he says about it. An entire family was murdered by a youthful addict in Florida. When officers arrived at the home, they found the youth staggering about in a human slaughterhouse. With an axe, he had killed his father, mother, two brothers, and sister. He seemed to be in a daze. He had no recollection of having committed the multiple crimes. The officers knew him ordinarily as a sane, rather quiet young man. Now he was pitifully crazed. The boy said that he had been in the habit of smoking something which youthful friends called Muggles. A childish name for marijuana. He had consulted on this story. That was amazing. Okay, good. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. He consulted 30 different doctors on this one story to see if any of them would say that cannabis linked it to the violent crime. Why would crime. he even talk to them? Like, what? Oh, why? Will, why wouldn't you he will just see make why. up? You will see why. 29 of them said there was absolutely no connection, but one of them said there was. So naturally, <laughs> Anslinger went with the opinion of the one anti-cannabis practitioner, spreading the word. And sorry, this is when you look at it at this time, too, when you're looking at how they describe cannabis. Chelsea, what is the name of that legislation again? Marijuana Tax Act, I think. How is it spelled? Uh, I th Well, I spelled it the way you spell marijuana. But okay, I because at this time, too, there's a bit of a PR shift. And most people see marijuana, it's with a J. Mm -hmm. When you see the actual criminal codes, like even in Canada, it was called marijuana with an And that's H. Mexican. Yep. And that is to connect it to Mexico. So he was spreading the word of marijuana fueled violence across his powerful network. Anslinger also had what he called his gore files, which the story is that we just talked about was one of 200 violent crimes, which he documented in there. This is called the Lakata murder. It has since come out that his family suffered from severe mental illnesses, which had been diagnosed in his early youth. Clearly, this the murders were not because of cannabis use. And no. researchers no have now wouldn't. proven that of these 200 cases that Anslinger had in his gore files, about 198 of them did not have anything to do with marijuana usage. And the remaining two cases, there's just not enough evidence to know. But... From that story that Anslinger brought out to the headlines, um, you would get things in the newspapers that say, murders due to kill a drug, marijuana sweeping the United States. 
And he that's was just, just that, feeding, that's the yellow journalist. Yeah. Praise at the time. And he loved to go out on, madness. Uh, yeah, he loved to go out and talk to the newspapers, talk to radios and say what's going on. And he really loved to cherry pick the stories that he was talking about or cherry pick his experts. Of course he would have to. Yeah. Anslinger collected dubious anecdotes of marijuana causing crime and violence and ignored contrary evidence, such as that offered by Dr. Walter Bromberg, who pointed out that substance abuse and crime are heavily confounded and that none of a group of 2,216 criminal convictions he had examined was clearly connected to marijuana's influence. He also ignored discussions forwarded to him by the American Medical Association in which 29 of 30 pharmacists and drug industry representatives objected to his proposal to ban marijuana. One such claimed that the proposal was an absolute rot. It is not necessary. I have never known of its misuse. However, only the single dissenter, as noted by Anslinger, was preserved in the Bureau's files. Now, with all this going on, Anslinger is, we're going to go through more of his quotes. He's very racist. And I wish I could find this one quote because I heard somebody talking about it. I can't find the quote though, but he really liked to connote first off blacks and marijuana. Second off jazz musicians and marijuana. And that's because jazz was so heavily influenced by the black community within the U S. Ah, yes. His prized Target was a woman by the name of Billie Holiday. I don't know if you know her, Chelsea. Her most famous song is called Strange Fruit or Strange Fruits. And it's, if you listen to it, it's got that 1930s style feel to it. But man, is it dark. It's about walking through a forest and seeing black men hanging from trees. And basically they're hanging there like strange fruits. Yeah. And I, I think we'll probably include that song in the podcast just because she died so long ago now that I think it is free use. But I guess we'll see. Yeah, there's a pretty dark history there, but yeah. this is about drugs. Yeah, but no, it is because it was with the jazz musicians and Anslinger found her to be a, a prime target because she was a heroin user. And here's a quote that he had. It is somewhat disputed. Most marijuana smokers are colored people's jazz musicians and entertainers. Their satanic music is driven by marijuana and marijuana smoking by white women makes them want to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers and others. It is a drug that causes insanity, criminality and death. The most violent causing drug in the history of mankind. And he talked about how marijuana was a drug that these musicians would use to be able to use their instruments and play them at such high speed as they did. And I don't think he understood jazz music or marijuana. No, he didn't. He clearly never even partook in marijuana at any point in his life. Yeah. Billie Holiday was targeted by Anslinger because of the 1939 song Strange Fruit. And he would threaten her and instruct her to stop performing the song. Targeting minorities, especially black Americans with drug charges and harassment was part of Anslinger's strategy to justify the existence and budget of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Anslinger was considered so racist that he was regarded as a crazy racist in the 1920s. <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah. In his 1964 book, The Protectors, Anslinger included a chapter called Jazz and Junk Don't Mix about black jazz musicians. 
Billie Holiday included, whom he had handcuffed on her deathbed due to suspicion that she was using and in possession of heroin. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, this guy's a dick. But everything that he's been saying, that these people are on drugs and killing people, that they're driving our white daughters to go listen to jazz music and have sex with the people playing it, has struck a chord with American society and riled up that fear that when the marijuana act comes up for legislating, Hmm. the vote took 15 minutes and Anslinger briefly spoke. But the fact that you couldn't be against that bill was all thanks to how he was pushing it. I think he, I mean, he was a dick, but he did a really great job at what he had in mind to set out to do. Yeah, that's very and true. It was all done through very manipulative, very stupid ways to put it like, like to put it in the yeah. most subtle way, not subtle way, like the simplest way possible. But I can't, like he wanted to get it done and he did. Yeah. And he reminds me a lot, at least in a very rudimentary way of Edward Bernays, who is the godfather of modern day marketing. He created the breakfast. He created um, the war with the justification with the war with Grenada. He created so many things that we just take for granted that are a powerful thing, just like diamonds as well. It's a powerful thing. Most of the ways that we think what we think of certain products and everything is all due to marketing. And just as a little bit of a tangent here, you look at how prevalent like with everything going on with Black Lives Matter right now and the defunding the police. And it has all been so ingrained in something so dumb, like for people immigrating and them blaming marijuana on them. And it's just craziness. It's not even things that are based in reality, like that yeah. these people are out for bloodlust and it gives them superhuman strength. Like, no, that's not what marijuana does. And it's all just, and it's things that are, we still see in society today may not be, we would not let somebody stand up on a platform and say something like that these days. But that's the point that I think it's getting at is that it's so ingrained in our society. Like these laws were passed because of racism. Yeah. And And I I was really like, I'm really trying to make a point of showing just how racist this guy is. Yeah. And it's in even the criminalization of all this stuff. It's so ingrained into our culture and it happened so long ago. I mean, by my means, like this is the 1900s that this stuff has happened. And it's not even something that we think about now where like, why is this criminalized or why it reaches far more than just drugs. But that's the point of frame that we're looking at it in right now, that it's yeah. so ingrained into everything that we do now. And, well, and it's, it it's not only it's not only ingrained just in the U.S. either, because in 1936, the Convention for the Suppression of Illicit Traffic in Dangerous Drugs was concluded in Geneva. And the U.S., who was represented by Anslinger at this, attempted to include the criminalization of all activities in the treaty for all drugs, cultivation, production, manufacturing, and distribution, and related to the use of opium, coca, and its derivatives and cannabis for non-medical, non-scientific purposes. Many countries opposed this, and the specific focus remained in this on trafficking, in the Geneva Convention on Illicit Trafficking of Drugs. Um, 
surprisingly enough, in this convention, the U.S. never signed it because they felt it wasn't tough enough on drugs. Oh my God! But, you but look he, at he's like shaping this. the entire international. Exactly. You look at this, and there's still laws like this that are still in place, and nobody's even questioned it. But look at the dude who like put this into place and got into everybody's minds with false information. Yet some of these laws are still there. Yeah. And well, and he's still got his wording in here. So Article 2 of the convention called for signatory countries to use their national criminal law system to severely punish, particularly by imprisonment or other penalties, deprivation of liberty, acts directly related to drug trafficking. And we're going to get into this in the next episode, but that has greatly shaped racism in America. Yeah. 100%. Well, I don't know if it's shaped racism in America or our treatment of drugs has been shaped by just the inherent racism that is in the society. Okay. I could, I could put it that way. A couple of things. Oh, of okay. You're right. You're about. right. Yeah. That yeah. That's the better way to put yeah. it. Now that I think about what I said versus what you said. After the Marijuana Act, and sorry, I did find it in my notes. It is the Marijuana Tax Act. Okay. I missed that. I must've just thought it was yeah. spelled wrong. So I put it the other no, way. And it, it, it's weird that we do that, but that is a PR term that they threw in legislation he oh, yeah. worked on something called the boggs act in 1951 which introduced mandatory sentencing and other laws to further penalize the use of drugs so basically for being in possession of any drugs they had anywhere from a minimum of two to ten years imprisonment and up to a twenty thousand dollar fine which is a lot of money and then i remember this was drafted in the 1950s that is a ton of money that's a house great it's a great use of resources in total, I'm coming to the end of Anslinger here. In total, this man spent over 30 years in office. He Nobody spent... ever caught on to the fact that he was a dick. Well, I think it was just too much of a PR nightmare to deal with getting rid of him because he had such a portion of society gripped in that fear of drugs. Yeah. So he served under Hoover, FDR, which are two night and day presidents. If you ever want to look at just like a night and day shift between two presidents, that's a great one to look at. After, um, oh, who comes after him? It is the president who acknowledged Israel is the a state. It is Harry S. Truman, served under Harry S. Truman, served under Dwight Eisenhower, served under JFK. And then in oh. 1962, retired at the age of 70. All these people were like, you're doing a great job. He specifically thought JFK would let him go. But JFK is like, no, you're fine. Keep doing what you do. Yeah, you're great. When he retired, it was quite interesting because he retired. He had angina, which is an issue with the heart. And after he retired to his death in the 70s, he was prescribed opiates for pains associated with the issues he was having. Did anybody handcuff him on his deathbed? Nope. And in fact, there are many other people, mostly white, that he knew had issues with drugs that he kind of just said, like, hey, you should work on that. Like Judy Garland. Mm. Specifically, if it was a person that was of a minority group, he did not like the drugs they were doing. If it was somebody else like McCarthy the entire fight of communism in the US McCarthyism who had a severe heroin addiction Anslinger actually helped him get a direct tie in DC to kept him a supply of heroin is he white very white yes yeah, there you go but he ends up dying eventually critics of Anslinger believe his campaign against marijuana had a hidden agenda for example 
the EI DuPont de Nemours and Company industrial firm. Petrochemical interests and Williams Randolph Hearst conspired together to create the highly sensational anti-marijuana campaign so as to eliminate hemp as an industrial competitor to synthetic materials. However, the DuPont company and industrial historians have disputed any link between the development of nylon changes in these laws. To hemp, nylon was a huge success in the start. And he seemed to get a lot of help from industry professionals who didn't necessarily like the idea of cannabis being grown. So that is Anslinger to get into a little bit. So I tarnished him a little bit at the beginning, but we're going to go through a few more of his quotes. Marijuana influences Negroes to look at white people in the eye, step on white men's shadows, and look at white women twice. The primary reason to outlaw marijuana is its effects on the degenerate races. I wish I could show you what a small marijuana cigarette can do to one of our degenerate Spanish-speaking residents. That's why our problem is so great. The greatest percentage of our population is composed of Spanish-speaking persons, most of who are low mentally because of social and racial conditions. I read that one, too. Colored students at the University of Minnesota partying with white female students smoking marijuana and getting their sympathy with stories of racial persecution result in pregnancy. Marijuana is an addictive drug which produces in its users insanity, criminality, and death. <laughs> By the ton, it is coming into this country. The deadly, dreadful poison that racks and tears not only the body, but the very heart and soul of every human being who once becomes a slave to it in any of its cruel and devastating forms. Marijuana is a shortcut to the insane asylum. Smoke marijuana cigarettes for a month, and what was once your brain will be nothing but a storehouse of horrid specters. Hashish makes a murderer who kills for the love of killing out of the mildest-mannered men who ever laughed at the idea that any habit could ever get him. Gosh. Marijuana is the most violent drug in the history of mankind. <laughs> Wait, are we talking about marijuana? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you smoke a joint and you're likely to kill your brother. Holy shit. <laughs> marijuana leads to pacifism and communist brainwashing. Oh my god. At the same time as murder. <laughs> Oh my god, that if that's the insane. hideous monster Frankenstein came face to face with the monster of marijuana, he would drop dead of fright. <laughs> was he working with like a publicist on these, or is just he had to. his brainchild? Yeah, how many murders, suicides, robberies, criminal assaults, holdups, burglaries, and deeds of maniacal insanity it causes each year especially among the young, can only be conjectured. No and one knows when he places a marijuana cigarette to his lips, whether he will become a joyous reveler in musical heaven, a mad incessant, a calm philosopher, or a murderer. <laughs> so this, those are the quotes I got from this guy. I mean... And we I'm are, just surprised how far he got with it with stuff like yeah. that. That's crazy. And we are running 
short on time now. So I, I, I think I am going to close it up. Oh, one last thing I do want to talk about just because I think you'll be interested in this from your work as a travel agent. Do you know who LaGuardia is? Yeah, he was some guy, but it's an airport. Yeah, it's an airport, but he was the mayor of New York. Yeah, that was it. Fiorello LaGuardia. And didn't know that. he was the first to commission an in-depth study into the effects of smoking marijuana. And Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it always systemically contradicted claims made by the U.S. Treasury Department that smoking marijuana resulted in insanity and determined that the practice of smoking marijuana does not lead to addiction in the medical sense of the word. LaGuardia had this report released in 1944, and it really pissed Anslinger off, who condemned it as not scientific. <laughs> of course he would. Yeah. So if you've ever wondered why certain drugs are illegal, this is what you look at. It's this piece of shit individual by the name of Perry Anslinger. And he was incredibly hypocritical. He was a man who just wanted to keep his job and also keep POCs down. I don't think there's a better way to sum it up than that. Yeah. It's, it's actually like pretty... I don't even know the word for it because I didn't know that it went, it had a history like this. And once I started reading about it, I was a little bit shocked that it's so rooted in racism. Yeah. And if you've somehow stumbled upon this episode and missed the first one, I highly recommend reading the book Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari. It sheds a lot of light on this time and especially what's going on around the world and how it's become decriminalized throughout this. Um, yeah, it's it's a pretty complex thing. I think we just gave kind of a rundown to give you There's a lot more to it, especially if you want to look into the ramifications of jurisdiction with regards to federal versus state rights. It's not going to go into it there. There are different places to look for that, though. Yeah. I think from here, we're going to move into the Nixon and Reagan eras. Stay tuned for more racism. Not yeah. From, from, from us. other people. We'll just <laughs> read the racism. I do apologize for my use of racial terms throughout this. For the effect that the quotes have, I do feel yeah. that they need to be read in their entirety so that you can understand what is happening and the mindset of the people are participating. And the I, time and the, the, the not political climate, but just what was going the on. The cultural climate. Yeah, exactly. The cultural I, climate. Chelsea, anything else to add? I don't, other than we will be continuing with this topic. <laughs> I hope yes. you like to listen about drugs and stuff like that. I think we have another one or two to go just because it's something I feel very strongly about decriminalization. It's something that is a social problem that's not being addressed as it should in that decriminalization. And I might talk about it more on the next episode, but it's something I feel strongly about. And I didn't know this history, which it just brings a whole other crazy aspect to it in that these people essentially put these policies into place due to racism and they didn't know what they were talking about and i don't think it's something that fits or it's what it's not what our society needs yeah i think that's about all i have to input on it yeah this point. so stay tuned for next week where we'll look at how nixon has dealt with this idea uh his relations with black activist groups and oh, anti-war groups how Nixon dealt with the crack epidemic and how Clinton dealt with the, uh, oh, I forget the term that he used, but basically the super criminal who was powered by crack cocaine, mm. which, hey, you're 
current president will make an appearance in this episode. Oh, yes. Okay. So thank you all for listening. Please allow Billy Holiday to play us out. Thanks to several changes in copyright law, the lyrics and melody to Strange Fruit won't go into the public domain until 2033, 98 years after its initial 1939 copywriting. Therefore, we are unable to play for this song for you today. Please go to your streaming service of choice and search Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday if you wish to hear it in the context of this episode. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. Uh, we are a new podcast, and we would very much so appreciate if you could like, subscribe, share, and if possible, provide a five-star review or some sort of feedback if you feel like there's anything we could be doing better. But five-star review is the best thing you can do for us, as it does help, unfortunately, in the world of algorithms. Yes. Please and thank you. And you can follow us on social media at Journey to the Fringe. We don't have all of them, so try searching it. Instagram, we're on Facebook. Right now we have a subreddit. And if there's anything you want to hear in the future, feedback, anything, you can email us at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. If there's something we're missing that you'd like to see us on, please let us know. We only know what we know, so we're only and in so many places. Also, if you feel that we have gotten anything wrong, please let us know there as well, as we would really like to have the best information possible. We are mm-hmm. only as good as our research, and if you can provide anything further, it's a real help. Or if you want to share anything, we yes. will definitely, we're open to shares. So yes, thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.